ordering perspectives. So. Mm -hmm. All right, friends, let's have a moment for prayer. Gracious God, for Christian community, I give you deep thanks. And I pray for our time here together that we might grow closer to the people you are calling us to be. We ask this all in Jesus's name. Amen. All right, my friends, uh, we are a part of the reform tradition. Um, that came from um, Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther, a couple of other theologians down through John Calvin. And so when we have officers who um, agree to become ordained and serve as officers in the church, one of the things we ask them is, do you um, receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed Church? to which everyone is like, what are the essential tenets of the Reformed Church? Um, there's not a list. There's not a checklist of what those essential tenets are. I'm gonna offer seven from the confessions that I think are essential, but there are two things to remember. Um, all of these come from our confessions, from the Nicene Creed to the Apostles' Creed, all the way down to the creeds and confessions of, of the church. Um, we have these statements of what people believed at any given time. It's important to remember when we talk about the confessions that no one says, hey, let's write a confession today. There's usually something happening in the church that makes them stop and say, wait, 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 this is what we believe. So for instance, the Nicene Creed, the issue was, what does it mean that Jesus is God while also human? Well, we don't know about that. Let's get a bunch of theologians and church fathers together and have them write something all the way up to our most recent creed that's in the book of confessions, which is um, the brief statement of faith. And when the Northern Presbyterian Church and the Southern Presbyterian Church joined together, they said, now that we are united again, let's write a statement of faith that we can all agree on. So if you read through those, you can see the development of a lot of the ideas that we have. Um, so I'm going to pick seven things out of those. The reason there's not a checklist is because we believe first and foremost that the Lord God is the Lord of the conscience and that it is our job to constantly listen to where we think God is calling us, what God is teaching us. And then the second part of that is there will be times where we have to go back and say, you know what, we got this wrong. Let's do this another way. Case in point, ordination of women, right? For a long time, it was believed that there should only be apostolic secession which means from Peter through men, that line came down. And then as we moved into the 20th century, we began to go back to scriptures and read it. Is it possible that women could be called? And that's when they started realizing that we had people usually in the background um, who were women and who were preaching the gospel. And so the Presbyterian church said, you know what? We've gotten this wrong. We're going to reform. We're going to say, this is what we got wrong. And this is what we will do moving forward. So the reason there isn't a checklist of, yes, I believe this. And yes, I believe this is because we believe God is always speaking. 
And our number one responsibility is to listen to where we think God is calling us. Okay. However, we've come up with seven anyway. (laughs) Um, Remember that also that when we talk about the confessions, which is where the essential tenets come from, confessions are always what are called subordinate standards. The first standard is always the life and witness of Jesus Christ. So everything we do and everything we stay, we hold up to the biblical witness of Jesus Christ and to where the spirit is moving in our midst in order to discern where God is calling us. Does that all make sense? All right. So the first one that we will talk about today is the sovereignty of God. Sovereign as in ruler. Here's the idea. Um, The sovereignty of God is the idea that God created all things, that God knows all things, and God has all power. Okay, that's that's it. That's the idea of what we believe. We talked about predestination in here a few weeks ago. The idea that because God knows all things, God knows who will come to faith and who will not. Um, But the basic idea is that God is sovereign. Now, the idea is not that God has all power, so God will do with us what God will. It's not a fatalistic view. One of the hallmarks of the Reformed tradition is that the Lord God is not someone who rules us so that we live in fear, but rather it's the idea that God in God's ultimate power always acts consistently with God's character, which at the heart of that is love. Does that make sense? So the Lord God has all power, has all knowledge, but always lives that out in a loving way, even to the point of when we sin, telling us that that's not okay out of God's love and calling us back to God's way. I think in order to understand um, how we got to this point, I'm going to go kind of through the history of how we got here about how some different theologians have talked about God's sovereignty. Okay. So first of all, um, the doctrine that God is sovereign is at the beginning, either the first or second article of all of our creeds. The Westminster Confession begins with scripture. And then the second article is um, that God is sovereign. And the reason for that is because they use scripture for the proof for God is sovereign. But in any reformed tradition, our idea of God's sovereignty is usually right at the very beginning. And we get this, um, basically, it starts from our Hebrew brothers and sisters. So what is the the foundational tenet of of Judaism? It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall worship the Lord your God alone. Right? So Judaism is where we move out of like the pantheon of many gods and the idea that God has chosen God's people. And there is only one God, and we should be faithful to that God more than anyone else. In the Old Testament, you see places of the complete sovereignty of God. Um, Think of the book of Job, 
whether you read it as um, an allegory or a historical account, the bottom line is that God uses God's power in order to bring about the faithfulness of Job. Um, so our idea of God comes from the Shema. There is one God and there is no other. So that lasts for a very long time, all the way to the late medieval period. St. Augustine was very clear about God's sovereignty. And St. Augustine had a, um, had a conversion experience, right? So for Augustine, he lived this dissolute life by all accounts. And then one day he is kind of cracked open by the glory and majesty of God and believes completely in God's grace and forgiveness and is converted. So for Augustine, he looked at his own life and experience and said, I couldn't have refused that if I wanted to. God made such an impact on my life. God has such control on my life. But what's the question behind that? Then the question is, well, do we have power? If God is sovereign in every way, do we have any autonomy, any initiative? And that will become the question that will be asked after about the late medieval period into the early Reformation period. Martin Luther, when he set out his uh, 95 theses and started writing about all the things that he saw that need to be reformed in the church, he placed the idea of God's sovereignty always in the context of God's gracious love. Martin Luther was very clear that he was a sinner and so was everybody else. And the greatest truth of his life, like Augustine in a way, was that God offered human beings grace. That God who could do anything instead chose to offer us love and grace. And so that's the beginning of our reformed tradition where we see this emphasis on God's sovereignty, and also God's love and grace. And as you might imagine, in different times, those two ideas have taken precedence. I'll tell you what I mean by that. So the next church reformer who was before John Calvin, writing contemporary to Luther at the end of his life is um, Huldrych Zwingli. Um, and he talked a lot about God's sovereignty, but he came at it from a different way. Martin Luther was formed by his own idea of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of humanity and the grace God offers each person, the redemption. Zwingli said God is sovereign, but God is also holy. And Zwingli wasn't worried essentially about what happened to one person or the next. Zwingli looked at the whole of humanity and said, God has chosen us as a people to be holy ourselves. He wasn't so much concerned that one person might not know the way of Christ and would go to hell. What he was really worried about is that if the whole of Christian people didn't realize God's power and God's love for them, that there were going to be wars, that there was going to be a curse that falled on all of God's people. And so for Zwingli, he said the most important thing, yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is loving. But God is so other and holy 
and God has called us to be holy, that we should live out our lives being holy too. And to be very clear, when you read his writings, he's not warm and fuzzy. He's very clear that if you, if you grasp the absolute otherness of God, that you would be humbled to your knees and you would realize that God has chosen us as God's people to live out holy lives. We don't hear a lot about that, do we? Uh, I think we're in one of those periods of history where we don't talk a whole lot about holiness. Um, We tend to err on love and acceptance, which is good, but the biblical witness is clear that God calls us also to live a life dedicated solely to God. Um, The holiness and majesty of God were the most important thing. And for Zwingli, what it came down to is that you have God's holiness and majesty on the one hand, you have God's grace and love in the other. Zwingli always led with the holiness and the sovereignty. Any questions or thoughts on that so far? What does holiness mean in lay terms? Like God. We will be holy when our lives are completely dedicated and our line is in will with God's. So that's where we are. It's interesting because um, in the Catholic tradition in particular, the way that idea of holiness has been uh, lived out through the ages is the belief is that we are holy through the work of Jesus Christ. And our whole lives should see us move more and more towards holiness and perfection. That isn't often picked up in the reformers' literature. In English, for holiness, um, godliness, maybe. Maybe. I don't think there is. Okay, so this is weird. So you say God is holy. Holy is God. So God is God. Do you know what I'm saying? You huh. said that God is holy. This is what. Yeah. Okay. And then you said holy meant is God. Right. So God is God. Yes. I am. The idea is simply that. Yeah. You know, the great I am. Yes. And that we are called to live out our lives the way God would have us live them out. That is true holiness. A turning from idols. A turning from all the things that capture our attention besides the love and obedience to God. Didn't Augustine basically say, love God and do as you please in that order? Is what I'm doing, loving God? I, I don't know about that particular phrase. I do know that he thought all of our actions should be weighed against if it allows us to love God more or not. Like, like it was a continuum. You know what I mean? Does this move me closer to loving God or further away? Not a bad way to measure one's decisions, is it? All right. Um, so that's Bingley. Right after him came Heinrich Bullinger, who actually was the leader of the Zurich Church, where this was after Zwingli died. Um, and this is what Bullinger wrote in the 16th century in the Second Helvetic Confession. We believe and teach that God is in one essence or nature, subsisting in himself, all sufficient in himself, invisible, 
incorporeal, immense, eternal, creator of all things, both visible and invisible. God is the greatest good, living, quickening, and preserving all things, omnipotent and supremely wise, kind and merciful, just and true. And all of that is a holiness, the whole God. Yeah, yeah. Holiness is interesting, right? Because it's not, um, it's like the essential tenets. There's not a checklist um, that you can mark off of. Although I think we certain over the ages, people have been told there might've been a checklist. <laughs> but, um, but again, what we're realizing is that the biblical witness tells us about God's character. And this theology, this idea of God's sovereignty should always be held up to the character of God. All right, so now we're going to move to John Calvin, who was a second generation reformer. That means that Calvin took Luther and Zwingli and Bullinger's work and filtered that all through himself for his own work. So Calvin was strongly influenced by Luther and holding to the idea that grace is the most important descriptor of God. That that's the important part. For Zwingli, it was God's holiness and God's otherness. For Luther and for Calvin, it was always God's love and grace that was first. You would say God is love. God is perfect grace. God is sovereign. Um, and But then, much like Zwingli, Calvin said, but God's grace is for holiness. That... It is God's concern that a holy and just people would be created and be visible to the world so that others could see and know God. Um, God, certainly in the person of Jesus Christ, who we'll talk about next week, God came and was human, but that God at God's essence, when you're combining together the person we call God, even Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that it is holy. Um, and so it is only Calvin believes. Remember, we talked about this. How do we think people change? People, uh, Calvin and Luther thought that people changed when they finally grasped the grace that they were being offered. That if you believed that your best thinking would get you into places where you hurt others or you sinned. And then you realize that God would offer you forgiveness anyway, that that grace would so humble you that you would be willing to live as a response as God's people in the world. Um, Calvin is one of, is the first reformer to talk about the idea of human will and agency in the context of God's sovereignty. And what Calvin said, and this was built on later by um, Karl Barth, but the idea we begin to see is that, yes, God has all power. And in God's all-knowing, God lets us have our own power and choices. That in some way, God allows human beings power and agency in their own life, not because We've earned it on our own, but because it's, again, God's grace that allows us to have that. And so then for Calvin, you have to start thinking about how you will use your power 
to make it in line with God's power and use it in the world the way God would want. Does that make sense? And this is where we begin to see the idea of sanctification. Sanctification is the idea that the person you began as should move and grow in holiness as we live our lives. So if I leave this earth, the same hot mess I am today, I have not done what God has asked of me. And so Calvin would say, you live out your sanctification. It is always by the grace of God, but you use your will as best as you can in order to grow in your faith. Does that make sense? Um, I always say over and over again that all theology is splitting hairs. I mean, that's really what it is. It's just splitting hairs. Is our agency a gift of God? Is it because we're created um, beings of God? In the Reformed tradition, we are very clear that all things are given to us because of God's great love and grace. And so we may have our own agency and power, but that is a gift from God to be used in order to become God's holy people in the world. Um, let's move on. Uh, so Calvin writing in 17th and 18th century, um, actually 17th century, his whole body of work then becomes this um, thing that scholars for centuries expound upon, essentially. But at the heart of all those writings really is Calvin's writing. Um, and so we see that. And, um, and I don't need to go into that. It's just more of the same. <laughs> but again, right, Zwingli, God is so holy in other that we're called to be holy in other and God loves. Luther and Calvin, God's love and grace is the greatest truth and God, God is sovereign. Two different ideas of how you're going to live that out. Things really changed um, in the 18th to early 19th century because we had the holiness movement and revivals, right? And so what happens when you go to a revival? You go, and for a lot of people, you have a very spiritual conversion experience. How do we make sense of that? Because our Presbyterian churches were having revivals too. How do we make sense of that in the context of our theology? That was the, the real question there. Um, how do we talk about that? And so what we landed on through centuries of writing is that um, that, that kind of conversion experience is an experience of sanctification, that it is people moving towards sanctification, towards becoming more holy. Um, and so it's really just a part of God's sovereign love expressed under a tent with 300 of your closest friends. Oh, is that just me? <laughs> I'm the only one who has been in that position. So that carries us over um, to two 20th century um, theologians. One is um, Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um, as you might guess, he was German. Um, and Schleiermacher uh, thought that um, that we were a people who should realize 
that our absolute dependence, that everything we know about love and about sin comes from a gracious and loving God. And that faith should always be our response to that sovereign, gracious, and loving God. Nothing really new there. But what Schleiermacher does that is new is he said that there are two experiences of faith. One is our consciousness to our sin, and the other is our consciousness to our grace, to grace. And so to grow in faith means that you grow in your consciousness of your sin. So maybe what began as uh, the bigger sins that we all can identify, as we become more holy, we recognize all the ways that we turn from God in our life and our choices. But as we are also increasingly conscious of our sin, we should also become increasingly conscious of the grace that God provides us, which is really at the heart of why we say a confession every week, right? The confession is fairly general. We try to make it to where it would be true to anyone sitting in the pew and then leave a time of silence for you to offer whatever comes to your heart. But then we also grow in our knowledge of God's grace when we have that assurance of pardon. And every um, pastor makes a different choice, but this will tell you where I am. Um, we will have the same assurance of pardon week after week for a month at a time, because that's what I want you to remember. <laughs> um, that's what I want you to remember. Uh, I hope you will remember the act of confessing and what that is, but I hope those words of the assurance of pardon get inside of you. Cause I think that's the truly life-changing part. So I guess I am much like Luther and Calvin. Schleiermacher also said that with, if we are talking about the consciousness of sin, the parallel to that is the idea that God is just. God is a God of justice. God wants care for those who are on the outside, for those who are on the bottom, for those who are hungry and sick. And when we recognize our sin, we are recognizing all the ways that we are not being just the way God has called us to be just like God. In the same way, when we talk about um, knowledge of God's forgiveness and grace, we remember that God is love and wisdom completely, and we will grow in knowledge of that also. So I think what's unique to Schleiermacher, and if you don't catch it the first time, I totally get it because it's a very minute way of changing things. But what's unique is that he says that God's sovereignty and graciousness are equal, but that we as a people should be so changed that we live into that life of sanctification. He kind of equates both of them. And then after that comes Karl Barth. And if you remember anything about Karl Barth, it is this, that he believed God always gave the divine yes to humanity. That over and over again, humanity sinned and God said, yes, you are still mine. That over and over again, God's people turned from God and God said, yes, you are still my person. I call you back to the way. And when you couldn't do it, I will even send my very self to be with you. And so for Bart, he believed that um, sanctification is the goal of grace, 
but also he wanted to bypass all of the harshness that we see in Zwingli or even in Calvin who believed, right, that some people were damned. Um, and so Karl Barth just really wanted to help people realize that there is always a yes of God's graciousness. And sometimes that graciousness means a no to our sin and waywardness. So that's a lot. Any questions or thoughts so far? When you talk about splitting hairs because of the two different emphasis of different individuals, that might be a, a way of debating. But in, in truth, there are really two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And they reflect each other. It reminds me of the Chinese yin yang idea mm -hmm. balance. Yeah. And, it, and that works constantly in our lives. Yes. Uh, I think in the Reformed tradition, when our first tenet is that God is sovereign, we are saying that God is holy and righteous and other and all powerful, that there is not one thing that God has not created or is in God's control. But the second essential tenet is about the centrality of Jesus Christ. And that's where we see the graciousness and love. The beauty of the Trinity is that it's not one thing. It's this community, really. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that lives out all of these things at the same time that are all different facets of the same thing. I could never be a theologian because I'm terrible with details and I would never split those hairs. I would just be fine with whatever the first person said. <laughs> but luckily there are people who are smarter than me and who can do that. What is your idea? Um, what were you taught? Or what do you think about the idea of holiness and sanctification? You can see what our next sermon series is. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tara, it's sort of, if you think about all this, the emphasis on the grace goes back to Paul's in mm -hmm. his, uh, and he believed in uh, that he believed that you had that by grace you'd have faith and then sanctification follows. And if you put it then in the context of comparing that to the emphasis of James, where his he was more like dreamly, uh, he he. Uh, Focused on what Paul would call the sanctification. And people are always trying to balance that apparent contradiction between Paul's approach and James' approach. And you see that through that su succession of centuries and the different theo theologians, they're essentially uh, emphasizing either the one or the other. And of course, most of us think there's no real contradiction between right. Paul's emphasis on grace and James' emphasis on works and holiness. And that's and why to see that dynamic carried out through this dialogue of yeah. the secret. 
People get paid to just think about this and write about it all the time. Um, and that's why Martin Luther, he wanted James thrown out of the canon. He called it an epistle of straw because Martin Luther thought if in some way you are trying to earn your way through your works to righteousness, Martin Luther was like, it'll never work. There's never enough that you can do. Whereas I actually think what James is saying is we should live out our faith. You should be able to see its evidence and its fruits in yeah. what we do. One being the result of the other, sanctification being the response to grace. Yes. I think um, what's interesting about the idea of holiness in the context of God's sovereignty is that our holiness and our turning from sin, just like God's love is at the root of God's grace to us. Any change that we make should be rooted in our love of God and our awe of God and our gratitude to God. Um, not because we should or because of societal pressure, but because we are so moved by the love that we have for God and the gift that we have been given in grace that we will live our lives differently. And one of the best parts of Christian community that maybe we don't do well um, in this era is the ability to do that together and walk that path together and support each other um, you know, no one knows my faults better than my spouse, right? And in Christian community, we might be able to say to one another, this is a pattern I see lovingly. Um, yeah, Brian's eyes got really big. Let's never do that. Um, but I do think there are relationships within the church where that is much appreciated. All right, what, anything else? Okay, basically what I want to leave you with is that any doctrine of God that compromised God's sovereign omnipotence, any doctrine of God that lessened the emphasis on God's holiness and human sanctification is not a doctrine of our tradition. All of our doctrines of God have to take seriously God's otherness, God's power, and God's holiness, and God's call for us to live out the same. All right, next week, we will talk about the tenet that is the centrality of Jesus Christ in our tradition. So, thanks. So it's been a whole lot.